0: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined, as always, by my old friends, Heidi White, Tim McIntosh. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. We are here to answer your questions. And by your, I mean you, the listeners, not necessarily you, Heidi, or you, Tim. In fact, this is an episode in which we are not, you're not even allowed to ask a question. So uh, this is an episode for the listeners. I've never set that down as a rule before, but it's officially a rule for today's episode. Why is you that get, a rule?
1: Oops, already did it. I already asked a question. Sorry, I withdraw.
0: Um, I'm going to mute Tim for a few minutes. What? Tim's going to go what? into... Uh, he's going to have a quiet time for a little while got to have some downtime. That's what we call it at our house. You got to go have some downtime to consider your actions. Um, we are here to answer, to answer your questions. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to remind you about how you can get in touch if you'd like to do so. We have the Facebook page. Just search Close Reads in that search bar at the top of your Facebook account and you'll find it. You can join there and join the conversation. We have Instagram. That's at Close Reads Podcasts. And we have our newsletter, closereads.substack.com. And then finally, we also have our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash close reads. And over there, you can access some uh, bonus podcasts. We are working our way through Crime and Punishment. And then this week, we also uploaded a, a podcast for you where we answered your questions about all kinds of crazy stuff from summer cooking recipes to reading habits to... I don't know. What we Susan about did with the yogurt. And what Susan did with the yogurt. Yep. Yep. Uh, Whole Foods yogurt came up. So there was lots of stuff there. We we uh, posted that just to make sure that we're getting you plenty of good content. Uh, but we will be back next week with the next Crime and Punishment episode. So thank you for your patience as far as that goes. Uh, I hope everybody is up, is doing well out there. It's been a um, crazy spring. We'll put it that way. And, and now we're people's communities are opening up a little bit more. But of course, that comes with a lot of other complications and fears and then you know there's all the other the protests going on and so I hope everyone's staying safe and we're keeping your communities in in our prayers and I've been thinking about a lot of you and um, I posted this on Twitter last night I got on Twitter for the first time in months uh, other than to like post a work link or something and I was thinking about how I thought a lot about how do we respond to or comment on or offer something helpful um, in the wake of the protests and the issues surrounding the protests, and I, I realized that I think the best thing that we can do is to give voice to some some of the great the great uh, black poets that that have been writing about their experience um, and about the African American experience for the last you know 150 years. So we've been sharing some of those poems on the Daily Poem, and uh, also I think next year I'm going to you know, be wanting to prioritize, um, books by, you know, at least, at least to have a couple books by, um, by, by African-American writers and by other people who are, you know, minorities. Um, and so that's, that's something that I want to, um, let you know that we're going to be prioritizing in our next round of book choices. So I just wanted to say a couple things about that, uh, before we got into our, to our Q and a, um, I'm a little bit skeptical about people like me getting online and, commenting about this because ultimately, uh, you know, people say it all the time, but I think ultimately the best thing we can do is listen, but we do have a platform. And I felt like the best thing that we could do with that is to give voice to people who are ex- explaining and, and talking about the experience of, um, you know, of African-American people and, and other people who are generally not given voice. They can explain it. Much more profoundly, much more eloquently than than I can, so that 's why I wanted to give voice to poets like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Nikki Giovanni and Gwendolyn Brooks, who just had a, whose birthday was yesterday, and um, Langston Hughes and R- uh, Robert Hayden and people like that. so be on the lookout, you know we posted several already in the daily poem, and we'll post a few more so just wanted to uh to make mention of that uh, There is a semi truck backing up outside the window right now, so if you 're hearing honking that 's what it is. Uh, but uh, so I just wanted to, to mention that before we got into the questions. So um, that's that's all I, that's all I have to say about that. But um, if either of you want to add anything, feel free to do that before we dive into the questions.
1: No, I appreciate that, David. I'm glad that we're. It seems like the right way for Circe to be involved.
0: Agreed. Well, hopefully, hopefully so. Um, okay. Well, let's let's. Uh, Let's answer some questions about uh, Graham Greene's *The End of the Affair*. I almost said *The Power and the Glory*, but that was uh, that was a while ago. So as <laughs> <laughs> we could answer questions about *The Power and the Glory*, but I don't know that we'd uh, be able to some answer of them, as them precisely. Some of them would be the same question.
2: Like.
0: That's probably true. Okay, let's uh, let's start with this one. Um, Tina wants to know. You know, she mentioned that we were on a tight time schedule for the last episode, but she does want to hear more about Tim's fishing for steelhead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tim, before we get into the serious questions about the, the book, would you like to um, tell, us, tell us two interesting things about your trip? You have one minute.
1: <laughs> we floated down the Solduck Duc River, which is off the Olympic Peninsula, which is, I think I mentioned about the most beautiful place in Washington and one of the most beautiful places on the West Coast. And my buddy, Andrew, uh, hired a guide. And we floated in the soul duck and we were fishing for Chinook, which is a uh, spring salmon. And we only caught one fish and that was my fish. And it was an out of season steelhead, which we couldn't even couldn't even leave the water. That's how kind of protected. I'm glad about that. That's how protected they were out of season. So I kind of was the least accomplished fisherman and I caught the only fish as it often goes. (laughs)
2: Congratulations!
0: Beginner's you you. luck, Beg- absolutely. Do you? What do you like most about fishing? I mean, are you? Uh, did you go Were you guys just like sitting there silently fishing, or were you? No, we were on about?
1: a we were on a <laughs> boat. We were floating down. But I was you, in the front. Were, the guide was in the middle, and Andrew was in the back. So we were kind of casting to the bank.
0: Okay. Okay. Do you? Are you a? Are you a chatty fisherman, or are you? Uh, you I'm not the, the rules. I'm not. I don't like,
1: I like to be out there and just kind of soak it in. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No pun intended. Okay. um, (laughs) No pun intended. All right. Let's, let's turn to some questions about the book. Okay. Anne asks, um, she says, I'd like to hear more about something someone else mentioned in another thread. Sarah's repentance and whether she does repent. Do we actually see her repent in the book? And if she doesn't, then what can we say about that? So let's, let's turn to that first bit. Heidi, I'm going to ask you this first. Do we actually see her repent in the novel? I think that's an interesting question from the perspective of the craft, the craft of it, like the choices that Graham Greene actually makes in terms of what he reveals and doesn't reveal. So how would you answer that question?
2: I I do, but... As Tim said a couple of times in the last episode, I don't know that I can cite chapter and verse, um, but I think that her journey reflects a true repentance, displays a true repentance. I think the closest that we get to a statement of the understanding of of uh, how how she has been wounding herself through her sin is in the letter that she writes to Morris saying, I am not going with you, I do believe. And and in that, I think that that letter is really important anchor to the reader's understanding of Sarah's faith development, because it it goes from kind of this tormented inner journey of not understanding, like her diary reflects I've made a vow to God and I'm going to keep my vow. And and it, it does show a development of her faith, but that letter shows an understanding, I think. What we do also need to remember about Sarah is that she doesn't have a language necessarily for the kinds of words that we, That's a great Christians point. who are immersed in the faith and living in the faith have. So she's going to become Catholic. We know that. And in which case she would have words to say confession and repentance. Um, but at this point, what she has is a great love for a man she cannot be with. And the, 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 Spiritual chops to say no to him, walking in a path of holiness and keeping her vows for the first time, which does display a repentance, even though her words don't use that exact terminology.
1: That's a great. What do y'all think? That's a great way to articulate it. I think one of the things that's important to remember is that um, I, I think I come from a tradition where conversion is a like a moment in time. It happens. There's an altar call. There's a moment of repentance and life has changed. Um, But I don't know that that's in Christian history is the norm and an instantaneous or momentary conversion. I I remember reading Elizabeth Fox Genovese, who is a really decorated women's studies professor at Emory, talking about her conversion and she and her husband kind of at slightly different times, both became Catholic. And the way that she narrated is it happened over years until finally she kind of woke up and she said, Oh, it's, I I became Catholic. Like Somewhere along the way I have now, I'm a Catholic now. And I, I kind of get that impression about Sarah. This is a, Mm -hmm. not an instant, but a process. And so it's hard to find a particular text that says oh that's where it happens because she's kind of in the middle of the river
0: yeah yeah it's the it's more of a becoming than a have become yeah and you know the question's interesting because the the phrasing um that Anne uses is does she do we see her actually repent in the novel um and of course so much of Sarah is in the past or in her own letters um, and the letters themselves kind of mark a sort of repentance. You know, the, maybe there's not this big moment where she is quote saved, but they are the sort of narrative of her repentance. Um, that's how, that's how I read them. I, I mean, I think is my, you know, the the notion of the process of becoming saved is one thing, but then there's the notion of, of repentance. And I think what we see in in the letters um. Well, I guess in the journals, or, or how are you going to put it? Um, I think we're seeing the process of her, of her repentance, of her expressing, you know, what she's discovering, um, and and what she's. I don't know. What the word is feeling.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, what the process
0: like... that she's that she's that she's going through. Um, you know, repentance is more than just the the uh, the official words i'm sorry right (laughs) or i was wrong there's uh the repentance is in fact repentance is far more than that i mean that might not be repentance at all anybody can say i'm sorry i was wrong repentance is a you know it's a a, that's a hard thing right like uh, like hard books (laughs) and i appreciate what both of you are
1: saying is that the feeling is preceding the articulation like she doesn't know what the articulation is right but if you're looking yeah. for it, like what's going on inside of her,
0: the way, the happens. way it looks is it's an expression of of fear. you know mm-hmm. her she's using the language of shes she's using language of fear, language of loss, language of longing, right And that that's the expression that she had. That's the language she has to express the alterations that are happening within her heart and within her soul and within her mind.
2: Right, right. Well, and'd <laughs> be I'd be curious to ask what do you mean by repentance, right? Is, is, are we equating repentance with conversion? I said no questions. Right. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm just ignoring you. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. But it's, it's because as Tim pointed out different, even within the Christian faith, the historic Christian faith, there is an, an emphasis on repentance at different points. You know, within the Protestant tradition, there is more of an emphasis on repentance and conversion at the same time. Uh, And, and then within the liturgical traditions, including the Catholic traditions, you have more of a lifestyle of repentance, a, a, a way of speaking about your sin on a daily life that is, Lord, have mercy. And I see that for sure, but I, I, I don't see that she has the language for that, but I see it evidenced in her life. And I, I think that the language would have caught up, um, but she, hmm. she I don't even know if she uses the word sin in connection with her actions. She just knows, I made a vow to God and I have to keep it. And, and then that is the anchor point and everything comes hmm. from that.
0: Hmm. That's, that's interesting. I, that would be an interesting study. Does she say, does she use the word sin? How does she identify the dissonances, the disorders that she is feeling within herself? Does she give it the name sin at, right. at any point? Or does anybody um, in, in many ways, it feels like it's a book about the, 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 the dissonances that sin creates in right. people who don't, you know, believe in the notion of sin. And it's a, In some ways, it seems like it's a book about people coming to terms with the reality that, that sin is a thing, you know, and it destroys you.
2: I totally agree, David. And in that way, that's I think that's maybe the one of the, the great I've never been able to articulate it before till you just said that. That may be the thing I love about modern, the modern Catholic novel. That's the thing I love about Brideshead. That's the thing I love about this, is that the exploration of sin is not necessarily sin as sin in the in and those who those of us who've been raised Christians would say, I know I committed a sin. Rather, it's this dawning awareness that the thing that you're doing that you don't want to label as bad is killing you. Mm and destroying your life and you're you're doing it with your own hands right like proverbs 14:1 the foolish woman tears down her life with her own hands and um, i'm not saying only women do that i'm just quoting the verse um, but that that is that's the thing that the catholic novel explores is that dynamic i don't want to call it sin and yet it's destroying my life and i have to stop and in that you find god Mm. And I, I love that about this novel. And, and so I would say her repentance is absolutely real, um, but she still has to catch up with that. We don't get to see her do that because she, you know, she dies.
1: Mm. You know, what would be interesting for a word study is I suspect that the person who uses the word sin the most is the person who is ostensibly the least Christian, which is Smythe. I mean, I, I don't know, but I suspect he uses that word more than anybody else.
2: To mock Maybe it.
1: aside from the priest. We, the priest is a minor character. So I'm going I'm right. to say he doesn't count in my word study so I can win. <laughs>
2: Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Proof texting. Always a good right. way to...
0: Yep. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's see. Next question. Amanda asks, Sarah's mom, what is her purpose in the story? She seems kind of two-faced, for lack of better words. She talks poorly of Henry, but then she asks him for money. She insists on having Sarah secretly baptized as a girl, but doesn't seem to live out her faith or even talk to Sarah about God and doesn't seem to object much to the funeral. A couple people followed up on this. Um, ha- have you guys... Did, you know, it seems like an Amanda might be saying there is a sort of, to use the word again, a sort of dissonance in that character for Amanda, that that that, that the purpose of it didn't become clear, and she kind of is left a little, a little bit floating, um, in terms of her purpose in the, within the novel, uh, the ends that she, you know, she meets for for Graham Greene. Tim, do you have any thoughts on this character?
1: She she strikes me as. Uh, in the parable of the sower of the seed as the one that fell on the rocks with no soil to give it purchase like she just seems sort of blown about Hmm. um it seems like she has this habit of attaching herself to men like every man that she meets is mean she says and i'm sure that once Bendrix walks away. If she's recounting him to her friend, she's saying he was a horrible, mean man. Like at some point, she's got to like face the fact that okay, you're either choosing unequivocally mean men, or there's something in you that like interprets everything as meanness. Now, but what she does in the story, I think, is a little bit different than what her character is, and I'll press pause there. Why? Like, I'm, oh, I was just... I, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give somebody else an opportunity to weigh in.
2: Okay, well, I'll weigh in and then you can say your thing and say if I said your thing. Um, so in the story, <laughs> she does a couple of things. She does provide a, uh, a... She does tell us about the baptism. That's like her main craftsman. That's her main textual purpose within the story. Um, now, then if you're, let's say you're uh, Graham green, then you have to give this woman some kind of personality, right? Like her job is to bring in, to, to bring in this sacrament. Um, but you have to give her some sort of personality. And if I were Graham green, I'd think I would like this mother to, in the short amount of time, she's taking center stage here to explain Sarah. So she gives Sarah a psychological realism, right? She's Sarah was raised without a father. She was raised with a series of men in and out, but also a mother who was a little bit of a con woman, but bad at it. Um, And didn't, as the commenter says, or the question asker says, is it Amanda? Is that right? Sorry, I want to get her name right.
0: Yes, Amanda. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
2: Sorry, Amanda. Um, As Amanda points out, she's not a devout woman, but if she was a devout woman, then Sarah would be unbelievable. Right, So you can't have a devoutly Catholic mother of Sarah, but you have to have a marginally Catholic mother of Sarah. So I think she's completely believable as a character. For sure. And explain Sarah's pathologies, like her serial yeah, that, that's desire the for big, attention one of the big from things. men. Exactly. Yes.
0: Yeah. I think in some way she's a character through whom we learn about other characters. Mm-hmm. Tim, did you want to go back to what you were saying, though? Um, No, that's. I love what Heidi said. Okay. All right. Let's do this one. We'll come back to the one I just passed because it might take a little longer. Sarah asks, are there any great Protestant novels? I love Brideshead and End of the Affair, despite the quibbles I may have as a theologically conservative Protestant. At the same time, I can't think of a Protestant novel, other than Gilead, perhaps, that isn't written from a theologically liberal perspective. Obviously, we are quite a diverse group here. A couple people followed up on that as well. Anything come to mind for either of you? Does Mark Twain count? <laughs> it's a good
1: do his question. His books count or does his or is he Is Mark Twain a Protestant? He's a Decentre, I, mean, I recognize his right? time and so, place, yeah. but yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. His books yeah, deal a lot with uh, Protestant issues, but from a different they generation. Sure do. M- Marilyn Robinson is the big one that would have said Gilead mm-hmm. and all her other books. Home, when we read Home later on, it will be very Protestant. Yes.
2: Yes. Well, and she's intentionally writing. And, and when I think of a, you know, the Catholic novel, what, what we're talking about is one that's intentionally exploring the Catholic way of viewing the world within the novel. So we're not just talking about novels written by Catholic authors. Um, and so in that sense, I would say, I don't know about Mark Twain. It's an interesting question. I've never thought of that before. Um, but I mean, you might look at somebody like Wendell Berry who is writing in order to defend what he perceives as a, a, a truly Christian approach to the world. But he's not trying necessarily to be ex, uh, exclusively Protestant. C.S. Lewis was an Anglican. I mean, dif- opinions differ on whether that counts as Protestant, so I'm not going <laughs> to touch that. Um, but he no, Let's wade
1: into that water. Let's wade into that yes. water hide <laughs>
2: how much time do we have um so it doesn't count to just say you know novelists who are protestants and writing novels uh it has to be an attempt to if we're defining the terms has to be an attempt to explore the protestant way of viewing the world um and marilyn robinson absolutely does that for sure she's a calvinist and she's like that is embedded that's threaded through her novels but i think you know off the top of my head those are the ones i can think of what about y'all
0: so, I'll, go ahead, Tim.
1: Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> yeah, I mean it for is sure. like the great. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably the great Protestant novel, and I think even in that book, you can kind of see part of the reason why, part of the difference between Protestants and Catholics. That book is is very allegorical, and I understand some of C.S. Lewis's work is allegorical also. Um, but I think way, that yeah. in a very different way. And I think that Protestants struggle to write compelling novels, maybe for the same reason they struggle to like put forward like really viable political philosophies in the last 300 years. But that's another story. Um, and I wonder if it has something that we can see part of the alternative within the end of the affair. Sarah's preoccupation. During what we'll call her conversion, her preoccupation with the physical, like the actual manifestation mm-hmm. of like the, the stuff of faith, Jesus on the cross, the crucifix in the church, water and blood and earth. I mean, these things are, she can put her hands on them. And in, in an allegorical novel, the kind of detritus of experience is less important, Right. Because you're kind of dealing with grand ideas. But I think in, an, in, in a non-allegorical novel, something that clo- close, comes closer to realism, the actual physicality of faith is crucial to telling that story. And I think it's part of the reason why most of the names we remember among great Christian novelists of the last 150 years at least in the West, they're mostly Catholics because I think that Catholic kind of, I don't know what you would call it, theology of the body and of the physical world is it's much more pronounced in my experience than in the Protestant vision of the world. I can kind of get away with saying all these things because I have like (laughs) such deep Protestant roots that I feel like I can, um, I don't know, be a little bit critical i hope i'm not being overly critical yeah
0: if um anything by john updike um little women is a very protestant novel um there's there are lots of this i mean the entire everything from the uh the uh puritan period like the scarlet letter all that stuff that's very protestant but i really recommend you check out um you were shaking your head well,
2: Nathaniel Hawthorne was a Catholic.
0: Well, I, yeah, that's why I, I was literally just about to say, it just depends on how you, what we're talking about here, because are they are we talking about novels that are written by Protestants? Or are we talking about novels that talk about Protest, the Protestant world? Mm. Um, right, are... I guess
2: that's a great point because I guess I was thinking of the, the, the great Protestant novel as being one that would defend, explore explore but defend the protestant way of viewing the world and nathaniel mm-hmm. hawthorne was incisively critiquing it but mm-hmm. i i might your your point's valid because all i might be wrong on that i might i might be defining that wrongly in my head because <laughs> or
0: maybe it is are. an
2: exploration <laughs> of the the puritan mind
0: right which
2: that's be kind protestant of what i was getting novel, at.
0: so good point. i would i would recommend that everybody go check out on this topic books and culture five years ago published an one of an incredible incredible essay called the novel as protestant art huh. it's by joseph bottom who's one of the hmm. best
2: oh he's great uh,
0: you know literary critics i you know i think around um books and culture is now defunct um but was, was uh, edited by my friend John Wilson. And this is one of the best, my favorite things anyway, that they published. And this is the first paragraph. So here's a proposition. The novel was an art form, the art form of the modern Protestant West. And as the main strength of established Protestant Christendom began to fail in Europe and the United States in recent decades, so did the cultural importance of the novel. So he ties the, uh, the idea of of the novel to the two and Protestantism together, you know, very uniquely together. Um, and so it's a long essay with lots of titles, um, lots of, uh, other books, you know, lots of other books, you know, you could build your own bibliography if you want to. Um, I think on the, on the books and culture website, it's, uh, 12 pages or something like that, or you can make it one long page, but there's plenty of information there. If you want to explore this, this topic, um, a little bit more so i highly recommend that anything else you guys want to add before we go into the next question that's a great resource david
2: that is great i'm really interested in this question i was glad she asked i've been thinking about this um and i wish there was more so if anybody wants to write a great protestant novel i would read it
0: (laughs) or maybe almost all novels are protestant and then that's what makes the catholic novel unique
2: that's an interesting point of view. <laughs> I want to say go on, dot, dot, dot. But oh, we don't have time. It's not that kind of an episode. I
0: know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Tracy asks this Everyone who came into contact with Sarah seems to get a miracle except Henry. Why is this?
2: I love this question. I was a little stumped by it. Unless, unless David is right. About his comments last week, and the miracle, and Henry's miracle is the restoration of his peace through making peace with Morris, mm. and that that is his path to salvation.
0: I um, I have I will have no comments on whether my comments last week were were correct. Why not? Baby? My take is that was is true. I made my comments last week. I don't need to, you know. I feel the, like I need to. This is a great
1: opportunity to gloat.
0: <laughs> well, she didn't say they are. She just said they might be. If they hmm. were, That's yeah. how I, I made the case last that. week.
2: I told, you. Totally convinced me. I'm. I'm. <laughs> I've converted.
0: <laughs> You've repented. Yes. It was a, it was a process. Well, have mercy
2: on me, a sinner. Forgive me, my brother in Christ.
0: <laughs> Tim, where do you stand on this then? I'm not particularly on whether I'm correct, but whether uh, Henry gets a miracle. I'm a little less convinced.
1: I, yeah. I, I found your argument last week compelling, but my my conversion is a slower process, I think, maybe than Heidi's
0: is. <laughs> yeah, you haven't repented of the, haven't, the error of your ways. I haven't
1: you know the error of my ways.
0: Well, I, I don't know. that I think part of it depends on how we define miracle. I mean, the other miracles are much more blatantly state you know they're much more obvious you know Henry doesn't have a mark on his face wiped away or isn't returned from death or the brink of death so it's at at, at least it's much more subtle but if that's true she says so her question is why is this so everyone who comes in contact with Sarah seems to get a miracle except Henry. Why then, even if, let's, like, even if we accept the notion for the sake of conversation, that, that what I described as what's happened to him is a miracle, it's still more subtle. So right. why then is Henry's experience... Um, why, sh- so why is he left out? Yeah, why is it not as direct as the other characters?
2: Well, Morris's miracle is internal right it's it's the if we're i'm assuming we're talking about separating him from the girl is that his miracle
0: well but i mean i think there's also the miracle that he she prayed and he lived
2: oh well she that's definitely dead. very dramatic so yes okay then never mind my art, my argument falls to pieces <laughs> then cuz i was going to say his his miracle is a miracle of the heart, a miracle that separates him from sin. And so maybe Henry's is the same, but if being raised from the dead is his miracle, then that argument goes right out the
0: window. So. Maybe maybe, we get, maybe people aren't limited to, more, to just one single miracle in the Graham Green universe.
2: I guess probably not.
0: So, <laughs> What if
1: Henry's miracle is that Sarah, after her... But after her moment after bendrix's miracle um has fidelity she's faithful to him that's more that's less like a miracle directly happening to him it's more like he's benefiting from the effects of the miracle
0: well yeah i mean it's clear that he he seems to be changing like he recognizes he repents of his own failures as a husband and, and and i mean is that not miraculous?
2: Well, he has such have a carefully your eyes open. ordered world. Isn't that the whole point of Henry? That he's so cautious; he never has any problems. He doesn't need any miracles. Like he's like so put his life within these narrow parameters, and he's made his world so small, right? And that's the hmm. um, when when Aristotle talks about the virtue of greatness of soul, he says that it's, you know, it's virtue is always the mean between two extremes. So the negative mean, uh, excuse me, the negative extreme is someone who lives a life that is smaller than the capacity for their soul. And that, his smallness of soul. It deliberately shrinks their inner and outer world so that they don't encounter any need for a miracle. And in, in, in that sense, that's Henry. Hmm. So maybe the miracle, or maybe just the great work, if we don't want to use that term, the great work that Sarah does for him is an invitation to live to the capacity of his soul, to have to forgive, to have to engage, Hmm. to have to feel something bigger than how he has ordered his world. And and, and Sarah does do that for
1: him.
0: Hmm.
1: That was well said.
0: Someone just sent me a text message. This is completely off topic. I'm excited uh, about it. Someone just sent me a text message. I got this in the mail. Do you want it? And it's a $100 wine voucher for some wine company.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I get those a lot. And people do give me those because I do drink a lot of wine. So you should take it.
0: <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I was like looking at the questions and as I'm sitting there looking at this question, trying to find the, this question, I, I got asked if I want a wine voucher. Um, okay. Greatness of soul. Next question. <laughs> Why do y'all pronounce it Morris versus Maurice? Lindsay wants to ask this. That's a Davis question. Because we think we're British. Right. Quite so. he's out. <laughs> could you say, Pinky's yeah, out. could you say more, Tim? I like that Tim is talking in like a... Could like I say a, More or less a Cockney accent, but then he uses his sixes pinky out, like the <laughs> queen who does not speak in a Cockney yeah,
1: accent. Yeah, I, I know. It's a little bit Cockney. <laughs> Morris, could you, pass the, could you pass the biscuits, Morris?
0: <laughs> it's very
1: Cockney. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> David, is uh, that the reason why we say Morris instead of Maurice?
0: I think it's just pronounced Morris.
2: It's the I, British way.
0: Yeah, the British. I think that's how I Googled it. Also, I know Morris Manning, and his name is spelled Maurice, but he said he says Morris, and he said it was an English thing. Mm-hmm. So before I met him, I didn't know that. So I don't know. Maybe we're wrong for all I know.
2: No, Colin Firth pronounces it, Morris. We're right. In the audiobook?
0: Yeah. Oh, well, if Colin mm-hmm. Firth pronounces it that way, then... I know. You know, I'm going to stick with it. Absolutely. If... Uh, Mr. Darcy pronounces it that way, then that's obviously the way way to pronounce it. Exactly. Okay. Um, Aaron asks, I would love to hear a conversation about the dinner with the priest. He is so painfully uncharismatic and comedically Mm. so. Henry's attempt at small talk centers around how much poverty and immorality there is in the neighborhood. I found myself wishing that he could be more of an influence for these two men. But Bendrix was especially bound to hate him no matter what. So maybe it was better that he was so flat. Or was the priest just weary of all these cynics? I wonder what Green was intending to do here, though. Something along the lines of, I love Jesus, but sometimes I don't like his friends. She puts that in quotation marks. Susan um, asks, uh, kind of was um, following up on the question as well. So um, I'll share her comment on it after I hear from you guys on this. What do you think about this? I remember I, I had the same feeling as Aaron, where you want him to be a little bit more aggressive in a sense. You want him to... Try to point people, point out the error of people's ways, and you want him to say, "Yeah, well, you're thinking about this all wrong, and that's silly, and all those sorts of things." But he doesn't do any of that. So, where do you? How do you fall? Where do you fall on his character? How do you go first this time after Tim went first on the on the mom character?
2: Um, if so, I recall correctly. So he is the priest. We're going to only get the priest from Morris's point of view. Um, and as Aaron points out, Morris is bound and determined to hate him. The priest is the enemy. The priest is the embodiment of the threat. Uh, in some ways, the priest is the representative of the uh, the lover who has stolen Sarah away from him in every conceivable way, not just her heart, but now her body. And um, I think the priest does say a, a couple of fairly wise things, but mostly his appearance he's he's he seems like he's trying to control himself, right? Trying to not lash out at um at at Morris and Henry. There's kind of this contained, weary, um, uh, defensive posture um that, that the priest has knowing he's coming into hostile or enemy territory and he's just trying to like hold it hold his own there. Um but he's not this, you know, wise presence who's going to fix everything and say the things that put him on the conversion. Because the the emphasis of the conversion needs to be on Sarah, um, and and so in some ways the priest is tangential in every way to. Uh, so he needs to be neutral at best, I think, in, in order to carry the story forward.
1: I agree with that. I Anne, isn't it kind of in keeping with? The Whiskey Priest from the Power and the Glory. I mean, there's not. The Whiskey Priest is stripped almost completely of any sort of um, virtues that we would want out of Christ's representative, except the Whiskey Priest kind of keeps going. And I wonder if Green, these are the only two books of his that I've read, but I wonder if this is something a way that Graham Greene kind of sees the figure of the priest operating. It's not, um, there is no charisma that makes the priest legitimate. It's, um, it's this role. He, it's this role that he plays within
0: it's the, the Catholic sacraments.
1: church. It's in, it's the sacrament. right. It's the sacrament. The fact that he administers the sacrament and is like, God's representative on the earth—that's the source of his authority. It's not his charisma, his powerful rhetorical skills.
0: So Susan comments on this. Actually, I'll share her comments. This is she Susan says, Johnson. Yes, Johnston. Yeah. With the yogurt. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. If, you, if you've listened to the uh, the bonus podcast over on Patreon, you'll you'll know that Susan. It's a very wise uh, woman. She, she, took all of, she took all of Whole Foods yogurt supply. Uh, <laughs> I think that was what we concluded. Um, Susan wrote, I was wondering this too. Um, a big theme in the power and the glory was the power of the sacrament of ordination. How the ability to celebrate the Eucharist was not dependent on his personal holiness. My husband and I were saying that if we had a criticism of the end of the affair, it would be that he might go a little too far in his view of the power of baptism i'm not sure but he might i wondered if the priest had to be kind of awful in the case of a serial adulteress it had to be perfectly clear that she was not personally attracted to the priest but only to his church Mm. so that that's an interesting yeah interesting take but also like yeah the idea that he's you know his, his the sort of what's the word efficacy i guess of the of the role of the position is not tied to the uh the um the key, the charisma of, of the, the individual, because the, the, the role transcends the, the individual giftings of the person.
1: Walker Walker Uh, Percy's books are interesting because they do something very similar. There oftentimes is a, a priest will show up in the book. I remember, I think it's the last gentleman boy, Walker Percy just does a number on the poor priest. he, he has a wandering eye. He's completely uncharismatic. There's kind of nothing about his person that a human being would typically find kind of compelling and arresting in any way. And, and I wonder if, sometimes I see a lot of similarities between Percy's and Graham Greene's novels. And I wonder, Percy coming a little bit later, if if Graham Greene was an inspiration upon him and if he kind of used some of his materials in his own book, just mm-hmm. an idea.
0: I would bet so. And we're gonna talk about Walker Percy later this year uh, and that may come up. Okay, uh, this is from Fern. She says, I keep reworking this question, trying to figure out what is bothering me. Mostly I think I need a refresher on the timeline of reason since these things are not yet pegged solidly in my memory. So I guess, Tim, this is for your novel. The setting of this book is London, World War II. I remember earlier discussions about all that changed in the world in connection to World War I. What did World War II do to culture? I guess I was surprised in this book how distant the reference point was on what I consider fairly basic Christian knowledge. England had been a strongly religious country not that long before, yet these characters seem comfortable in their Gnosticism slash atheism. Their arguments about religion are well honed by debate, which takes time. Maybe they represent a certain class in society, but even the general populace seemed indifferent to the anti-God takes on the green. There was no Mrs. Lind going home gasping. What is this world coming to? Mm. Not that she fits into the storyline. I guess I'm wondering, does religious consciousness die out of society at large in 20, in the 25 years between the world wars, which of the many puzzle pieces of world history am I missing today? Um, that, that, that's, Penultimate question there, Tim. I'd love to hear from you on this. You too, but Tim first.
1: I think that's a great question because um, Churchill during world war II, was talking about the fight against the Nazis as being a fight to preserve Christendom. So I think, sorry, what is her name? Again, the person asking the question, David
0: Fern, Fern. Fern.
1: Sorry. I should remember that. Sorry, Fern. Um, so I think Fern is right. I, I, I don't think that, like Christianity has just sort of been stripped off of England prior to World War II. Otherwise, Churchill, I think it would make no sense for Churchill to say, "This is a fight for the future of Christendom." That word <laughs> still has purchase in some way in World War II. So my suspicion is that Graham Greene is writing about a certain segment of society maybe a more elite segment of society, um, more literary segment of society. And I wonder if the... Um, the, the I don't know, how do, how do I say it? The power of Christianity has diminished there more so than it has among maybe a more... the broader populace.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I was thinking also about how during lewis's i mean during during world war 2 c.s. lewis's lectures aired on bbc I, I guess or on the radio at least and uh, a lot a lot of what we now know as mere christianity was if i'm not mistaken public speeches that he gave either on the radio or whatever and and they became fairly popular and were and were meaningful to people and and so during times of great crisis you know it seems that you know, people return to, or often will turn to things like this, and so I wonder if, in some ways, this is an ex- a book about that process. How sometimes during times of great crisis, such as the as the world world wars, like it's like that the cultural crisis in the microcosm of these individual lives. Heidi, go ahead.
2: Well, and again, to draw attention to the Catholicism of the novel that. There is a sense in which the 20th century Catholic novel understands that the sacramental way of, of viewing the world is a dividing line between people who can claim Christendom and mean it in, terms, in a cultural sense and people who are really engaging with the wrestling with God and and the catholic novel demands that on an individual and an existential level in some ways it it um it it is taking that kind of more universal change in the world and putting it within the the hearts and the souls of the characters and saying if if this is true if if the Christ, if the christian claims are true this is what it demands of you personally um and and that that asks quite a lot of the modern mind even in the middle of the 20th century even in the even when winston churchill was saying we're fighting for christendom and people were vigorously nodding along with cs lewis there is still a sense in which in the middle of the 20th century to say baptism is a sacrament that will define the rest of your life, that's a big ask to the modern mind.
1: I wonder, Heidi, also, if Catholic novels at this time are more, how do I articulate this? They, are, they recognize um, that the call to repentance and the call to conversion is a how do I say this? It's a minority report. Yes. Um, Because Catholicism, I mean, I think even in the 20th century, like well into the 20th century, if you were a a Catholic living in England, you couldn't hold public office. You know, there was a, there's a very strong anti-Catholic bias. The church of England is the mainstream church. And I think the church of England kind of played a very similar role to what the Protestant Catholic churches played in europe and that you were born and baptized into them that doesn't it was a it was a cultural distinction or as a cultural tradition and habit more than anything else so Mm -hmm. anyway to be a catholic in england at this time is to be um you were not kind of part of the cultural mainstream and so the choice to become baptized into the catholic choice into into the catholic church was, that was a hard decision. That was a decision yeah, a to kind stake. of dissent from cultural norms.
2: Right, right. Yep, and there is a sense in which the Church of England was keeping up with the times, I say that in air quotes, but they were fully engaged in uh the political maelstroms of the day, whereas the Catholic church was, as you point out, it was a, 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 a dissenting church in England. Um, and so the, the Catholic novel is always pointing out that div- existential dividing line uh, for the soul. And, um, and that has implications in the larger world, but that's the, he's kind of staying in that first circle of let's talk about the soul.
0: Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to move us on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I want to get to a couple more questions here that I think people will be disappointed if we don't talk about. Sally asks this. I wonder what to make of Morris and Sarah's use of the word love. Love is, I believe, made up of a lot of small hours and days and joys and sorrows that give depth and breadth to the commitment between, made between a husband and a wife. For them to say they love each other seems so, so much seems really shallow. Grand passion at best just lust at worst. What do you guys think about this?
1: (laughs) Heidi's over there smiling. Heidi, what do you think about this?
2: I think that there, I I think that an understanding of the um, various Different kinds of love. I know that that's pretty popular now. People understand that there's, you know, that there was four words for love in the Greek, um, and that they kind of represent different types of ways to love. Um, and in that sense, I think the question is getting to the heart of: Does an erotic love count as a charitable love? Um, and. I think at this point in culture, we've gone, especially within Christian culture, we've gone a little bit, maybe too far on the extreme of saying that they're divided, right? It used to be that people just thought, if I have an erotic love, then it will carry through me through my whole life. And then you find out 10 years into marriage or friendship or uh, whatever different relationship you're in, that it's actually hard. Um, And we're confused by that. And now I think we've kind of gone the other way in which people have divided those things too much into saying an erotic love can't be a charitable love. And I think that's wrong. I think that they can. So I think that they have a grand passion. They have eros for sure. Can that become a love of, can that also include and keep within scope charity? Yes, of course it can. However, the problem with their love is not that it's erotic. This is my point. The problem with their love is not that it's erotic. It's that it's unlawful. It's that it's adulterous. And in that sense, it cannot be blessed by God. It cannot receive the sacramental blessing um, of the divine. And that's where it fails.
1: Terrific. Mm -hmm. That was a terrific answer. That's like... Pull that from the show and like advertise with that answer. That was so good,
2: but it's too long for a poster.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> one day Heidi, you're gonna one I just, day. I, <laughs> one day you'll say something smart enough to go on a poster. <laughs>
2: I, I know. I come on, it's, it's not smart, smart, it's not
0: smart enough. It's is
2: really the it's, issue.
0: So. Fonts can be all kinds of sizes, though. Let's be honest.
2: But posters can really only be one, so
0: that's. Well, I mean, we could have a, you know, you giant posters of LeBron James's face on the side of buildings in Times Square. I feel like we could have, you know, everything you just said put on a poster in Times Square too. I mean, it probably wouldn't be worth the money, but theoretically, it's possible. <laughs> I,
1: mean, I have I a poster. A it's hanging right. Be- I have a poster that's hanging right behind me, of a hand holding a skull. Alas, poor Yorick. And it's Brilliant. the whole of Hamlet, all five acts, every word in miniature type that kind of like sets the relief of this hand holding the skull. So Heidi, it's possible. It's if, possible. If Circe would yeah. just now, show I mean, no some. One would read that, but. <laughs> I think it's on Circe to just show a little bit of artistic ingenuity, David.
0: As. As, uh, as the great poet Kevin Garnett, yeah, <laughs> as the great poet Kevin Garnett once said, Tim, nice. anything is possible. <laughs> he was the
2: guy. He was the only guy who said that.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. That um, deserves a poster. Yeah, Kevin Garnett was the guy. Heidi White. Um, <laughs> okay, let's see here. We got a, we got a couple more here. Do you think it matters if Morris actually dies in the explosion, or is it enough if Sarah thinks he dies?
2: Tim, you have to answer this because I answered the last one. We take turns.
0: I I purposefully did not ask one of you directly. I wanted to see how that would shake out.
2: I don't want to be greedy. Too much airtime.
1: Go, Tim. I want him to have died. I don't think it's necessary that he did. Heidi. Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I I think it... I believe that he did die and that it was a miracle. Um, But... It's left deliberately ambiguous on purpose. And so either way works for the story, in my view. What do you think, David?
0: What do we mean by <laughs> die? <laughs> no Don't <questions>. do this. <laughs> I know I said you guys can't ask questions. <laughs> um do you, you definitely said what, we. The question is what what do we mean by um by matters like does it matter to Sarah does it matter within the context of the novel um, does the mo- like is the novel saying something different if he dies versus if he is just injured um, I actually think that it's a fascinating question mm-hmm. um, like is the no- if he has died or if he's just injured th- is the novel ultimately then necessarily saying two different things um, and I don't have an answer to the question I just think it's an interesting follow-up question that would be an interesting. That you know, really topic is topic of discussion. Um, I kind of, I kind of think maybe it doesn't. Um, Go on.
1: You kind of think it doesn't.
0: Just to Sarah, I think um, UPS guy just came in. Oh. I'm not in the studio. The studio is not set up because we haven't been here. But I had to come to the office, and the UPS guy just came through. Um, man, this is a tough question, actually.
2: What makes it so? What makes it so tough?
0: Well, one thing is my computer is about to die. Hold on.
1: <laughs> I, 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 yeah, what, what about this, Heidi? What if, if the, if Morris died, the book is a story about God's miraculous intervention in human affairs. If Morris did not die, die. then the book is about Sarah's volitional choice to keep a promise that she made to a God that she did not yet understand and follow through on it.
2: Right. I think that's what makes the question really fascinating because I've... I've been, I have only thus far in my in my life talked about this book with other Christians. I've never talked about this book with anyone who's not a believer. And I would, I am dying to. I'm just like, who mm. do I know who's mm. a reader, who's not a Christian, who will read this book and tell me what they think about it? Because in, in that well, case- Well, I mean,
0: a hundred years of book critics.
2: Right, but I mean talking to. I I- <laughs>
0: You can talk to I book want... critics.
2: Great. Get me in touch with a couple of them. And I- <laughs> I didn't say will... they
0: would answer back.
2: So I think, David, you're right. This is a fascinating question um, because it's, if he did not die, it, it really does open up the possibility that Sarah's completely deluded and robbed herself of happiness for the rest of her life. If you're not a Mm -hmm. Christian.
1: Mm -hmm. Maybe that's like, that's the third way to to look at it. Yeah. So it's either her volitional choice to follow a God that she doesn't know. It's God's miraculous intervention, or she makes a choice that makes her unhappy for the rest of her life because she doesn't get to be with Morris.
2: And it costs everybody. And that's the risk you take as a novelist, right? Like you That's, I mean, it's brilliant. The fact that he leaves it ambiguous is brilliant. Right.
0: Right. That's, yeah, that's the key. That's to me, the key decision that he makes in the book that takes it from interesting to sort of one of the reasons why it's a classic. Mm. Yeah. Um, On the one hand, it might not matter though, in the sense that, you know, within the context of the story, God uses what she thought happened to, to change her. And so whether it actually happened is, is irrelevant if she actually changes. You could you could make that case, I suppose. But right. I kind of think she, I kind of think he did die. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do one more. Laura asks this question. Discussion has occurred in past book episodes about the concept of having compassion for characters. For example, Heidi urged us to hold compassion for Rose in crime and punishment to the end. I'm thinking about the unlikable characters in the end of the affair. Is holding compassion for characters a habit for us to cultivate despite some characters' quote, unlikability? As close readers, is this something that we should generally strive for in all literature? Are there literary examples of characters whom we should not have compassion for? and Why? I always like to have one question on one of these shows that's about reading and literature more generally. So, Tim... I would love to hear about this from the perspective of a person who creates characters. Oh, do you how do you think about this notion if you think about it at all? And if someone was reading your book and you knew that you were creating a character who was unlikable, would you want them to have compassion or think compassionately about that character?
1: Yes. Yes. But that doesn't mean that a character is necessarily going to be likable. I I think all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us have this sort of like dividing line between us and we gravitate toward the good or we gravitate toward the bad and unlikable characters presumably have gravitated, have given themselves over to the bad so much that their humanity is warped. There's, um, um, a lack of kindness and love and the hospitality and benevolence. These things are lacking in the characters. But I think that all, every single person that we meet in the street is fighting that interior battle. And so I think that if we can literature, it seems like is an opportunity to hone the craft of compassion for everybody. Even those people that are just, we find despicable. Haughty, seemingly having no redeeming qualities. They still do. You know, they still do. It's really hard to recognize it, but they've made, as all of us have made, like a series of choices, sometimes small, sometimes large, that have taken us toward kind of like effacing our true humanity. And as difficult as it is to show grace and compassion to those people, that's what we want for ourselves. And I think literary characters is an opportunity to to hone that and practice that hmm.
2: I can't think of a situation that we shouldn't have compassion on either characters or people, with the caveat that compassion does not absolve or take away the responsibility of having right judgments. Um, And I think literature is a training ground or a, 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 a safe way of practicing carrying both of those things, having right judgments and having compassion, because there's not much at stake there you know your response to literature is your own it's your own uh you're not it's not going to cost you necessarily a relationship or it it's it's a place where you can safely learn how to do both and I think that that's one of the great values of literature especially to a child they read something you know like Anne of Green Gables which uh teaches them how to see, you know, Mrs. Lind as a person, not just somebody Mm -hmm. who won't let you climb her apple tree. Right. And um, so I really can't think of a situation in which you shouldn't have compassion, even on the villains, even on those who are, even, even in a story, those, those who are lost or condemned, um, which again, doesn't mean you don't have right judgments on those characters and rejoice when they experience the justice of their actions um, and find a, a, a sense of rightness in the fact that at the end of Macbeth, the stage is littered with dead bodies um, because he was wrong. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have compassion on him. I think that's one of the things that literature asks us to do all the time, and we should do it. <laughs>
1: That that word compassion, I suspect it's Latin. It comes from the Latin, and I suspect that the roots are come with passion, probably similar to what our understanding of passion is, with slight differences. It, it, so we're using that word in like as 20th century Americans, and I think that. Tell me if you guys here use the word compassion in a different way, but I use the word compassion to to mean something like. I have a disposition of softness toward that person, but I don't mean it in the old Latin way. I am coming alongside their passions and I am sharing their, I want to have the same passion as them. I suspect that's what the early definition of the word was, which is not what we're arguing. Heidi's right. There's there's a discernment that's kind of mandatory. It's mandatory in, um, in having an affection for a character that we don't find right virtuous,
2: right. Well, and there's even a difference between likability and compassion on characters. There's a certain type of character in a novel that I don't really like. I'm I have a hard t- I have a hard time. And I somebody like, and I'll give you an example. Somebody like Marianne in Sense and Sensibility which is probably because I'm kind of like her in my, if I just like let myself go unrestrained, I would definitely go down the path of Marianne. And so I see her and I, I don't respond with compassion. I just naturally don't really like her that much, even though that's not a requirement of reading the novel. She's not a bad guy in the novel. She's just a character. She's a beloved character. And I, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't really like that girl. But that is, that's a problem with me. Mm. Right? Like, and I think that's the thing about reading is, is you, when you encounter that, you say, is this a me problem? Is this a book problem? Almost Mm. all the time with me, it's a me problem.
0: Yeah. I think that, you know how people, well, we all talk about how books change us. They reveal things about, reveal things about ourselves that, that changes us, not necessarily in a because the book is the didactic, but that one of the things that happens to us as we read is we begin to see ourselves. And I think that the reason that that happens is because we recognize how we are responding to other characters. Like I think that that's the big thing of that that's the way the literature works on us. Is it shows us what we think and feel about characters, um, and that's why I think that the most important thing in any any kind of story or player or whatever it is, ultimately it comes down to characters. Mm-hmm. Um, if the characters are thinly drawn, if they're poorly drawn, if they don't if they're not shall we say real to use a very loose term, then we are not going to be able to see ourselves you know we can't see ourselves as clearly um, and that makes it less meaningful, it makes it less. It's a lot less likely to become a heart book for us. That's why I think why books become heart books for us. So, you know, it's usually rarely is a book a heart book just because of the action of the story.
2: That's right. Mm. It's
0: almost always because of the characters and because we see to recognize something in ourselves positively or negatively in those characters. Absolutely. Um, you know, like I love books that have action in them. You know, I, I love genre fiction. I love stuff like that. But the the greatest, the ones that sort of transcend genre, transcend genre because of the characters that are in them and the complexity of those characters and the way that we can see ourselves in those characters. Um, Or not because, and and I want to be careful about this. It's not a didactic thing. It's a thing that we as readers just begin. it, It happens without us trying to, without the author trying to make it happen. The author tries to create, create good characters and the nature of experiencing art is that we recognize something of ourselves in those characters it doesn't happen with every book, but when it does, it then often becomes either a book we love or a book we hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a character we love or a character we hate. And it's usually because we see something in ourselves positively or negatively in in a, in those characters.
1: Yeah, well um, said.
0: Well, we should wrap this up. Anything anything final you guys want to add? This is this is the end of the affair. This is our last chance not forever but you know, on this podcast to talk about the end of the affair. Next week, we're going to be moving on to Frankenstein. We have uh, Karen Swallow Pryor and Josh Gibbs jumping on that. And then we're also going to be continuing on with, um, with our conversation on Crime and Punishment. And Of course, Tim, you've got the Coriolanus Cori- Cori series with Sarah Jane Bentley, which is going to drop in the not too distant future as well. So there's lots of great content, but this is your last chance to talk about this book, on this podcast, unless we bring it up again in a future show. <laughs> Tim, do you want to go first?
1: I don't have anything profound to say. I, this is, I'm glad that I read this book in my youth, but this is an adult book. I, I just, mm-hmm. I was not mature enough to recognize how powerful and insightful this book was was when i was 22 glad i read it but much more glad that i read it today
2: yeah i i think that i'll i'll confess i was a little bit nervous to do this because i like love this book so much and i didn't know how it was going to go over like it's about an affair and i was i was really moved by the the engagement and the response within this reading community on the mm. facebook page and emails and um how many people just were willing to enter into the messiness of it and um without dismissing it as you know right, right off the bat immoral or whatever but to engage with it and and i i i just wanted Say that that was meaningful to me personally, and I think speaks to the maturity, um, and the spiritual maturity and the literary maturity of this community. And I'm just so pleased to be a part of it.
0: Tim, what was that? That was,
1: little little was a little like dance, just like what Heidi was
0: saying. You were doing. You're kind of just in the spirit of what she was saying. I Was in the spirit. Okay. <laughs> right, what do you well. think?
1: What do you think about? having finished the end of the affair.
0: I think that's another, another notch in the old Goodreads belt. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what I just said. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Cross that off the list. Uh, no, I, I, I enjoy these conversations. I find Graham green, the, the sort of the subtext of Graham green's work to be, so compelling for conversations, mm-hmm. so we'll have to come back maybe one day we should read um one of his uh not entertainments per se, but maybe read like um well you well you didn't like the Armada of Havana, did you tim no um, what was the what's the bright uh, uh, Brighton Rock or something Brighton like that oh yeah. yeah um i haven't read that, it that would be an interesting interesting one to mm-hmm. read in a couple of years or something but um yeah I mean you guys are right i mean the 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 audience the the community is always makes the conversations better. Like, you know, yes, um, we kind of talk about things to some degree. We, we do try to appeal to, to you guys who are listening, but also there's a degree to which we kind of just have to follow where conversation leads. And so that can be a little self-serving most of the time, but you guys always complete or continue the conversations in such an interesting way um, that, that sort of anything we start, you guys tend to tend to um, what's the word enliven tend to, Bring to fruition, up, bring to fruition, make more complex. I don't know. Just look up a thesaurus. <laughs> Somebody just look up a thesaurus and, you know, post some things on the Facebook group. Um, so, yeah. Th- and thanks to everyone who sent in questions. As always, the questions were challenging and interesting and, um, uh, you know, worthy of spending some time with. Uh, like I said, we'll be on to Frankenstein next week. Uh, be, uh, if you have not listened to Tim and Heidi talk about As You Like It, one of my two two favorite of Shakespeare's comedies, if not my favorite, one of one of the two, then definitely check that out. Um, and as I said, we're going to be diving back into Crime and Punishment. We're recording a new episode next Monday, I think, right? And so that will be... That'll be up shortly thereafter. That. And make sure to check out the, uh, the bonus Q&A that we did. We've got lots of content. We've got some things in the works. So uh, thanks to everyone who supports the show, uh, whether because of rating and reviewing, you know, sharing uh, sharing it with somebody or uh, financially through Patreon. We're really grateful. Uh, couldn't do it without you guys. So so that's it. You guys want to add anything? This is your last chance. Not forever. Sorry, but, you know.
2: last, last chance?
0: It's your last, last chance on this episode until Extra next It's Extra last chance. Yeah. All right. Well, I take that as a no. Okay. For Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, happy reading.